this is what school is supposed to be like. Like I had no idea that there was this whole new way of educating that was out there. And so I completely fell in love and felt like I found my passion and my calling to be someone to enter the educational space and to innovate and to hopefully change it for the better and align it more with the future. Welcome to Cross Pollination. We're a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Welcome to 2021. We were on a bit of a hiatus in the fall, but this week we're back with some cross-pollinating with the education sector. What does the future of education look like? Why are things changing in that field? And are there ways that innovation in education, business, and other areas can cross-pollinate to benefit each other? Natalie Vardabasso joins the show to tell us. She's a teacher and current educational designer in Calgary, Alberta, who's passionate about those topics. She's also the host of EduCrush podcast on all manner of topics in education. We chat about the past and future of education and how to prepare students for that future. She'll tell us how learning looks different now and why, about equity, assessment, classroom creativity, and lots more. She has some great advice if you have kids in school right now, too. Natalie starts with a surprising and cross-pollinating start to her own career. I'm actually someone who never wanted to be a teacher growing up, <laughs> which is usually a little bit different than I think most people expect for people in education. I had a father who was quite prolific in education in BC. He was a principal. He worked in the ministry. And with a last name like Bardabasso, <laughs> you can't exactly hide. So everybody always assumed growing up that I would be a teacher because, you know, logically follow in his footsteps. And so I dug my heels in early on and was like, no, I will be Beyonce. <laughs> and I decided I want to be a, a performing artist. So I followed that path for quite a while. I did tons of dance and musical theater and theater in high school and then followed that to university, went to Capilano University in Vancouver, did a musical theater diploma. And at that point realized maybe I wouldn't have the most job prospects with a musical theater diploma. So I went back to school, got an arts degree in English literature. Again, not the most job prospects. So I actually moved out to Calgary for a year just to serve and bartend. So what eventually got Natalie into education and turned her into the passionate educator she is now? An opportunity came up to try a very different, innovative education program. And that was the only way my dad could get me to even think about it. He was like, give it one month. And if you absolutely hate it, then you can quit and I will never bring it up again. And so I went back to the Okanagan, where I'm from, and I tried this education program at the University of British Columbia in the Okanagan. And within a week, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what this is what school is supposed to be like. Like I had no idea that there was this whole new way of educating that was out there. And so I completely fell in love and felt like I found my passion and my calling to be someone to enter the educational space and to innovate and to hopefully change it for the better and align it more with the future and where we're going. And so that's led me to the current job I have. I work for a special education independent school here in Calgary. Um, so I'm in more of an assessment specialist role working with teachers in K to 12 to help them to better understand how to use assessment to drive learning, not just to measure it, which is what we've traditionally done. And then aligning our progress reporting system with that. And so I do that through like professional learning, workshops, coaching, design, all kinds of different things. So that's how I got to where I am. Natalie, as she mentioned, now works as an instructional designer at a school specializing in special education. She talks about how she got into that specialty, and later we'll hear more about a related connection with equity in education, and how innovation enters there too. To let you know, the sound cuts out very briefly in this clip. Um, growing up, my older brother is, he, he has severe disabilities, 
So he was born with cerebral palsy and then he had a couple complications when he was a toddler and it led to it becoming quite severe. So he is a year older than me. He's 34 years old, but he has about the brain uh, function of about a three year walk he can't communicate he needs full-time care so I'd always been more comfortable around people that were different than me and I think it also awakened a bit of a passion in me early on that um, not everyone has the same experience in this world and they are equally as human as anyone else they want love they want acceptance they want joy all the things that we want and so I think I was drawn to this school um, because fundamentally I believe in public education one should have the access to the best quality education but I liked that they were serving a population that the mainstream doesn't necessarily support for learning. I think it's always there, the diversity. We just are more upfront about it. Because we call ourselves special education, we we mine down to like, what are your strengths? What are your areas for growth? What are you bringing to the table? And I think all too often when a teacher enters a classroom, they there's kind of been this myth of average that's been created in education where it's like standardized and everyone's the same and everyone learns the same. So I'm going to deliver it all in the same way, test you all in the same way. And then if you don't meet the standard, it's because of you. It's not because this isn't designed for you to be set up for success. So that's what's really cool about being in special education is I, we live diversity, we just live and breathe it. And that is so important for learning. So Natalie is someone who's been interested in education and in taking an unconventional route for a long time. I asked her about innovation in education and what led her to start thinking about it, especially since it's what led her to connect with all of us on this podcast and on her own. Story first of all, I'm reading a book right now called Pivot by Jenny Blake. And in you probably know it well. And in the beginning, there is a section where she talks about after you get outside of the box of basically going through your very mundane standardized educational experience, then you can start to create and build this life for yourself. And that like shook me. Like I got to the end of that section. And I was like, oh my gosh, I really think there's this wider perception in society that education is just something you have to get through so that you can actually start innovating and creating. And we're internally being like, we need to create the foundation for innovation and creativity and really support those skills early on because there is so much neuroplasticity when kids are going through those younger years that we can be helping people to discover their own ability to innovate and create because that is so, in my mind, fundamental to what it means to be human. I think like to be alive is to create. Um, so I'm, it's something I'm passionate and others are also starting to realize we need to bring that back into the space and look at it a little bit differently. But obviously with my narrative, like I just explained to you, it was something that was on my mind as soon as I entered the space. It was almost a non-negotiable to me. Like I'm not going in to do status quo. I am coming into this space to do something different because I was a great student. I always feel like that's an important caveat, but I just, I feel like I really just suffered through school. <laughs> I was the kid who figured out the game very, very early on. I knew how to get my papers in on time, my assignments done efficiently, effectively, so that I could free up my time for my more creative pursuits. And I was shocked at how well that worked for a really long time. And I don't think that that should be the case. I think that we should be able to really engage in rich, deeper, creative learning earlier in our lives. And that would set us up for success as soon as we do leave and we know what we want to do, that we have the tools and the skills to enter into a workspace and be someone who can do the job efficiently immediately and not have to be like, okay, now what? I have to learn everything because I'm actually doing the work. Um, yeah. I asked Natalie, what's triggering a need for innovation in the education sector? Um, I feel like this isn't new, but the urgency is a lot higher, especially in 2020 and the big uh, disruption we've just seen with everyone having to move to remote learning all over the world and North America. Um, but 
this kind of push, I think, started a little bit of a history lesson. So the educational model that we have now is really based on the Industrial Revolution and how they created the system to think about students as products, hence the grading. And they are empty vessels that need to be filled with information. And really the goal of education was to help them to be very efficient workers when they got onto like the conveyor belt. They can follow instructions, they can listen for the bell, they can take their break. And then in about like the middle of the 20th century, everything changed because with the Cold War, um, suddenly there was this push for, we need a smarter population. They need to know more. We've got to beat out the other countries. And so that was this move to what was called cognitivism. So they created standards and it became about getting a lot more information across to the students. And so they put different standardized measures in place to make sure all that information was being covered. But then in the end of the 20th century, obviously we saw this little thing called the internet happen. And the idea of needing to have all this information recalled in your brain is suddenly transferred into a device that can find that information for you very quickly. So the shift now is it's no longer about learning information, but learning how to do something with it. So in terms of when that need for innovation came, I would say it was really at that point, right? As the internet exploded, everyone realized like what we're doing in school, like all of this content, 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 quiz, content, 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 test. It just doesn't align with how people actually use information anymore. Um, we can get the information quickly, but we need to be able to go deeper. We have to have some different competencies with that information. So we often talk about the four C's that emerged right around that time. So the new push was for collaboration, for creativity, for critical thinking, for greater communication. And that was actually created by looking across industries across the world to say, what, is, what do students need? When they leave school, what do they need to be successful? And it was those four C's. But the problem is it's really hard <laughs> to shift to the educational system. There's so much inertia from the past, like that industrial model is even still there in a lot of ways. If you walked into any school in Calgary right now, you'd probably see students at desks and maybe not now because they're in remote learning. But <laughs> Typically, you'd see students at desks and you'd hear a bell and the students would come out and they'd move to their next classroom. Um, so I think the push has been there for a long time. It's just been building and building and building. And now that we've had this big disruption, it's kind of like the alarm bell <laughs> is ringing. <laughs> and it's like, we need to change. It's not working with the world anymore. I think the biggest difference is in the past, school was a place where you were taught. Whereas we're moving into the future, school is a place where you need to learn how to learn. I think it's as simple as that. It's not that it's it's learning differently. I think actually, if you look throughout history, all the way back to like Socrates' theory of knowledge a long time ago, um, there is some fundamental human understandings of what learning is. But through the industrial model and then the shift of cognitivism, it came about being taught. You need to, you're an empty vessel and you need to be taught what to do. Um, and so there's a pretty, there is a huge pedagogical theory that really is going back to that classical understanding of knowledge and how we build it. And it's kind of got a bit of a dirty, it's become a dirty word in Alberta, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's a uh, constructivism and it is the most well-established supported theory of learning in which, I mean, it's logical when you explain it, you have background knowledge from your experiences, you get new information, you have to process that information based on what you already know. You often listen to different perspectives and you socially negotiate how you process that, hearing what other people say about it. And then you come to a new understanding and then you just, that happens again and again and again and again. And again, back to that diversity theme from before, we all have completely different background knowledge and lived experience. So if you talk about learning differently, it's more of a recognition of how we always, I think, have learned. Um, we just somewhere along the lines are 
vision of what learning is got lost in the business of teaching. Wow, that's a pretty big shift in thinking about education and learning. And it's not dissimilar to what's going on in other fields where trends related to technology and how it's changing the world of work are happening. So what tools and methods does education use to deliver that new kind of learning? Well, I mean, the beast, and it sounds like it probably is similar in business too, is just design thinking. Um, as soon as that came out in the business world, I find education is always trying to watch carefully to see what people are doing in the fields because we're technically supposed to be preparing students for any field they might enter. Um, so design thinking picked up pretty quickly, but it's often used with students more often than with the educators or the leaders um, in education. So they'll teachers will plan projects around it. Maybe they'll get to a place where the students have that core knowledge. And then again, they need to do something with it. It's, and so instead of having a test, a big replacement I see often is that teachers will say, okay, here's a problem. So now that you've learned a bit about this piece of history, here's a problem we're having in current society related to that history. And then the students have to like empathize and ideate and go through the whole process and come up with some kind of a solution and do a project in that way. But in terms of, I feel like often we'll all be talking about, you'll probably find this on your podcast a lot. We'll all talk about the same thing, but use slightly different words. Um, so in education, one of the big trends right now is something called professional learning communities. And it's really just design thinking in context, like when I really step back and take a look at it. So it's teams of teachers coming together, um, noticing a problem of practice, really trying to figure out what's going on here. Why is it the case? What can we try? And then they try something. So essentially they prototype, they gather evidence of impact and impact always being student learning. I mean, the best innovation, innovation in education is always something that drives student learning. And then if it works really well, obviously you share, you scale, or you try something else. You look for the next problem and it just becomes like a cyclical thing that goes on and on. Because we've been talking about the future a lot in this episode, today I want to tell you about ATB's new podcast, The Future Of. Join Todd Hirsch, ATB's Vice President and Chief Economist, as he connects with special guests who offer unique and useful perspectives about the future. Explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunity it creates. From the future of women in business to the changing nature of work itself, the future of helps us understand what's coming and what we need to do today to get the tomorrow we want. Featuring two episodes each month plus bonus episodes, the future of includes interviews with top community and business leaders from Alberta and around the world. Subscribe to the future of in the Apple Store, Google Play, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found and connect to ask your questions about the future by emailing the future of at atb.com. Speaking of podcasts, Natalie was kind enough to interview me on innovation based on what I've learned from this show and my own work, and you'll find that episode and all of her episodes in the same place as you find podcasts. I'll also include details on where to find her show on the web and social media at the end of this episode and in the show notes. I asked Natalie about her show, how it came about, and what they talk about, and how they're crushing in education. The podcast is called Hashtag EduCrush. Um, bit of play on words with the, the word crush. Cause I mean, there's a little bit of the verb in there. Like, yeah, we crush it and there's some strategies and tools, but also, uh, it's, <laughs> I say edgy crush a lot in terms of people who are out there in this field, really trying to challenge and disrupt the status quo. I legitimately have like, you know, a heart emoji edgy crush on them because <laughs> it is hard. Anyone, I mean, a lot of people that are on your podcast, listen to your podcast, they know firsthand how challenging it could be to be the person who steps out front and tries to say, what if we did this instead? It's a very lonely, it's a very isolating experience. And the whole reason I started the podcast was even though I entered into the field very clear-minded about what I wanted to do, 
I quickly got lost in the business of the job. And this was almost my way to look up again and remind myself of what motivated me to do this in the first place and to find other people who are doing the same. <laughs> um, so, you know, the hashtag at the front is kind of symbolic of that. And so I not only meet people through the interviews, but, you know, the network of people that are following along with it now are interested in the same things. They're asking the same questions. Like, are we doing this the right way? Like what pieces of our legacy do we need to, to leave behind? What pieces do we need to keep? What do we need to prepare the students for their future and not our past? And those are challenging, complex questions and very highly emotional because education is like the pillar of a democratic society. And so you don't want to rock it too much, but we're aware that there's some big things that just aren't working anymore. At first, I thought it would just be educators, but I'm realizing that there is so many people who have such a big investment in education and are doing incredible work to initiate change in their own capacity. Like my most recent interview was with the CEO of the Downey Wenjack Fund which started after obviously Gore Downey is very famous like final year and he really tried to bring awareness to the indigenous issues in Canada and the history of residential schools. And so she's not technically an educator, but her one of the biggest pushes of her leadership of that company is to work with what she calls legacy schools and to help them give them the curriculum, give them the resources, give them the tools to bring this important knowledge into their classroom and help to build truth and then hopefully work towards reconciliation. So the more I put my net out there, the more I'm finding that there's some really, really um, important voices that need to be brought into this educational conversation because it takes a village, right? Another topic that's near and dear to Natalie's own heart, given her specific work in education, is assessment. It's a hot button topic and also one that may, as she explains, also be due for some new and innovative thinking that more closely responds to both the way that people actually learn and to the needs of the real world and the real people who populate it. Yeah, well, I'm sure because well, everyone's been through the education system, there is probably background knowledge that every single listener has right now. When they hear the word assessment, the first thing that comes to mind to people for people is usually quizzes, tests, exams. So it is a measurement of learning at a period in time. And um, that has been the traditional understanding for a very long time. But again, we've seen that shift in about the past 20, 30 years. And now it's being treated more as a verb. So in all those cases, it's a noun. It was like this big event where you measure learning. And now we're looking at it more as an ongoing process that we do every single day that we're in the classroom with students. We can gather evidence in so many more ways than just a test. And this is something that I feel like I look to the business world a lot in because that's a really hard thing for people in the educational space to understand because in their mind, assessment is a test. But it's like, no, there's in the field, people are testing things and they're getting feedback and they're talking to different groups and they're trying it in different contexts. And that is assessment at the heart of it is it's just a process by which you have a goal. You say that is the outcome. This is what I want to achieve. It's hopefully something very valuable too, which makes it all worthwhile in the first place. And then you start to do things, you take actions and you get evidence back from those actions, which is feedback, which is something we talk about a lot in education. And based on that feedback, you make decisions to continue moving you closer towards that goal. So in a nutshell, that's the assessment in the 21st century in education. <laughs> so emotional. It's the most emotionally charged topic, I would say, in education, because at the end of assessment comes this lovely little thing we call grading, um, which, again, is a traditional paradigm. And there's reasons it existed. But as we're moving into the future, all the other fields like use portfolios. That's a very common practice in most industries is if I'm going to show you what I'm most capable of, it will be my personalized portfolio. Yet in education, we can't let go of this practice of I'm going to take all the diverse things, the evidence of learning I saw in my classroom and say, you are a 72. 
Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> and the purpose of that is just that it creates a, a mechanism by which we can sort students for university. But if we really truly believe in our core that all students are capable of high levels of learning, then we have to shift that system completely to look for the diversity of potential in everybody as opposed to who's at the top of the pack. That is the biggest challenge in education is everybody has their own criteria of what success means. And as you move through people's different assessments of you, you're just, you have to try and figure out what it is they want and then try to give them what they want. But like really solid assessment practices where we build transparency and consensus and the goals are clear to everyone and the criteria is clear to everyone. And then it puts everyone on more of a equal playing field for success. Definitely some things there that business and other fields could benefit from. That brings us back neatly again to the topic of assessment and another staple of the current education system, standardized testing. Uh, standardized testing has been around for a long time for the accountability purpose, right? If uh, you're going to have this publicly funded education system, the government needs some feedback on whether it's doing the job. The problem with standardized testing is that as our goals for education and how we understand learning to happen has shifted, the test no longer matches up with the learning that's happening in the classroom. That's probably one of the biggest challenges. On a standardized test, they're often multiple choice. Um, you'll have an essay perhaps, but for the most part, they're generally multiple choices like the bread and butter of standardized testing. And from what we know of learning and cognition now, that only really gets to some of that recall and a bit of understanding. And even as soon as you try to say, oh, it's an analytical question, they have to analyze and think critically. There's so much bias inherent in that because again, we all have different background knowledge, different understandings of something that your very wise critical thinking answer could end up being very different than mine but they, mo they both might meet the criteria for what is critical thinking. So that's where standardized testing is so tricky is it's usually a very, very biased tool and it only tests at the, the lower level of recall and understanding. So if we're saying that all of our students must be critical thinkers, they must be collaborators, they must be creative, you're not gonna see any evidence of that on the standardized test. So I feel like we're, it's just, it's in misalignment right now with the goals of education. There's a school called High Tech High in San Diego. If anyone's interested in stuff at all, look them up, watch documentaries about them. They're fascinating. And they do all what is called project-based learning, which is very much based on, you know, industry standards. We do projects more so than sit in class and do worksheets when you go to a job. And so they do all these projects. They engage in all of the, the four C's that I mentioned. And then there's their kids write the standardized tests at the end, never having practiced them, never even doing a test or a quiz. And they actually score 10% higher than the state average every single year because uh, they're looking for deeper learning on those tests ultimately. And if you're going very deeply into a couple subjects as opposed to just covering everything, you actually build the skills to be able to almost hack those kinds of tests. Like you can figure out what kinds of predictable answers they're looking for if you know the bigger, larger conceptual goals of these uh, curriculums and of these courses. That kind of more unconventional approach leads us to an interesting topic and an intersection with the major theme of this show, learning and the ability to be creative and to cross-pollinate. Like as kids go through the school system, they're naturally so creative and so innovative. Like it is in their, it's just in their heart and soul. And then we break things up and we disjoint it and we put them in rows and we move them by bells and slowly you see that kind of disappear until then you have, you know, it's this big push in industry. We've got to get innovators. And I think if we nurtured it earlier on by doing more projects, by doing more integration, um, more collaboration, more active learning, 
I think that would maintain and in fact deepen so that we would see very different people entering the workforce. In uh, education, we have, uh, they talk about the learning progression. We call it surface deep and transfer. And transfer is like cross-pollination, right? Like if you're not at that place, then there's a, my perspective is that the learning hasn't really happened, especially if it stays at only surface. And when you see a classroom that's very test and quiz and exam heavy, it tends to stay at that surface place. And when you never cross-pollinate, I find things never really, they just, they kind of get like you reach a plateau. Like it just can't get to that next evolution, that next place where you're like, oh, we're all talking about this one big thing. And it kind of makes everything else make sense after that point. The biggest opportunity for cross-pollination for me here is how do we set up more partnerships between industries and teachers in classrooms because they know how to design the learning experience, the instructional design, if you will. Um, but they need those subject matter experts that are actually out in the field doing that job for real to like to be able to give some perspective on this is the kind of work the students would be doing. This is how they'd be using math or this is how they'd be using science. And even more in a better world, it would like the technique the real world uses, which isn't a technique. It's funny to call it that. It's just integration. Like when you start a job, you're doing a little bit of language arts and you're doing a little bit of science and you're doing a little bit of math all the time, no matter what the job is. Um, so that is the biggest thing I wish we could really pull into education is break down this human made construct of needing to break things up into these subjects, which was just one man's idea at one point in time in the late 19th century. It's not something that has to be and it hasn't been like that in, you know, back in ancient Greece and Rome when they, they had a very rich uh, educational process going on. This year amid the pandemic, educators have arguably needed to be more creative than ever in delivering learning and helping students stay engaged than ever before. Part of that took place live and partly through online environments. Ask Natalie what happened during this year's radical change. So I think assessment was one big shift. Obviously, by going online, though, there was more flexibility than ever before. Education, especially K-12, has always been kind of a very rigid experience. And there's some schools in Calgary that do like a fully remote type of thing already, like Bishop Carroll. Um, but I think more schools now are capitalizing on the opportunity to try some more remote learning options or even blended learning where it's some remote and then some in person. So they still have that sense of community because there is so much information online. You don't need a person at the front of the room telling you like we have innovations like that are more entrepreneurial in ed, like Khan Academy. I don't know if you've heard of that one. Yeah. So it's a whole set of videos, uh, very high quality explaining concepts. So these all already exist. So if you are doing more, they call it like a flipped classroom. If you're giving the kids the content via video, then you can uh, create space in the classroom for more discussion and dialogue. So that's, I think, going to start happening a lot more. Perhaps surprisingly, and maybe with some interesting learnings for adults who are working from home, some of the students at Natalie School actually had more positive learning experiences this year through online education. Yeah, it's people are so diverse and so different. And because our population has a lot of like the the umbrella of learning disability can mean so many things. And for some kids, it is just challenges they're having interpersonally or the way that they communicate or express themselves. And so you take them out of the social situation of school, which is like all these people packed into a room all day, every day, not setting them up for success necessarily, giving them opportunities to learn through mistakes. But then you put them online and they're comfortable they're at home maybe they have their cat on their lap they're very calm and then suddenly you see they're able to think and share their thinking in very different ways because their number one barrier isn't right in front of their face all day every day that also brings us to another big topic both in education and the larger world including business which is equity 
It's been a hot topic this year in relation to students having access to the resources for online education or having a choice to learn from home or to go to school. What does it mean in the broader world of education? And what does it have to do with innovation? Um, it's a huge theme on my podcast, too, because for me, innovation should always be for the purpose of equity. That's just it should be for the betterment of all people and equitable access to opportunities and success. And one of the biggest things I reflected on with remote learning, I guess, in particular, was it really brought up for people, not just like physical access to means, which has always been there, but also how do we provide access to learning? Because when everything is very standardized and it's delivered in one way from one cultural bias, that's another huge piece that, I mean, is a big topic right now in in education, especially when it comes to things like standardized testing, which are an entry a gateway to university. And when you have panels of mostly white people writing these and mostly maybe one gender or another, like it starts to actually, it creates bias in the whole system. And if it truly is meant to be a system that creates opportunity for all, then we have some pretty tough conversations to engage in about how are we taking up this work and how are we creating culturally responsive pedagogy or instructional practice in our own classrooms to make sure that every single student sees themselves in that classroom, they feel like they belong in that classroom, and that their lived experience and their background knowledge is being honored and respected and heard so that they can actually engage in the learning. But thinking about all of our own cultural frames, especially because education is predominantly oh, led by white, white teachers and more specifically female white teachers. And so there's undoubtedly so much bias, even if you're engaging in the work, we still have implicit bias. And how problematic is that when our systems are set up where we we grade, we assess, we we decide whether or not one kid is successful or another. And where that really becomes a problem in education is grading often gets inflated through behavior or it gets uh, impacted through behavior, I guess is a better way to say it. So, you know, if you have a student that comes from a different cultural background than you, they communicate in a different way than you do, you might see it as disrespectful. And if you view them as disrespectful, even if they produce high quality work, you as a teacher, or if there's a very tricky thing that goes on there where there always is a little bit of an element of subjective bias. And so how can we be very, very clear and very careful in education that we are just talking about the learning and not letting behavior or our interpretations of behavior impact our assessment? Key, I mean, there's a team of us right now in my school that are taking this very seriously and we're digging into what does it actually look like in the workplace? So not even the classroom, like as we as adults are relating to each other, what do we need to be doing differently to achieve equity? And I went to a fantastic institute on this a couple of weeks back. It was called Moving Beyond Conversations About Race, about, yes, we've all been awoken to the racial divides with kind of the recent events with the Black Lives Matter movement. But really, it's about equity and race is the avenue into the conversation. But there are protocols and structures that we can all be doing to actually achieve equity in our organizations. And one of them is making sure that we ground ourselves in our cultural frames whenever a new team comes together, even if they all look the same on the surface. And that's something that often comes up in education. Like, well, why do I have to talk about this in my classroom? Like, I, we're all basically, we're mostly one race or we're mostly this group or they, we try to come up with groupings. Um, so by grounding in our cultural frame, you just talk about the impactful people, places and events in your life that have shaped your worldview. And you share that with everyone around the group. And it does that to ground us in our human commonalities, universalities, so that we can see the connections and find an inroad for empathy before we even engage in any kind of work. I think it goes for business too. If you don't feel that you belong and you don't feel that you are valued for who you are, you're not going to show up and do your best work. 
Some interesting considerations there for other kinds of workplaces as well, and maybe another area for cross-pollination. If you're interested in hearing more on this topic, we chatted workplace inclusion last spring with two podcasters and EDI consultants from the podcast Exclusion, which you can find in our episode list. Finally, I asked Natalie for some advice for families of kids who are at school right now, especially this year, when things have been highly uncertain and unpredictable. I think it's always to advocate for your child's needs. Um, When I think about my experience growing up with my brother and then a lot of the students I work with, uh, helping others to understand your child is always really important. And it's not that it's anyone's fault. The public education system is set up in that industrial model where it's just about efficiency and getting a ton of kids through as quickly as possible. And sometimes it's easier and more efficient to see everyone as average and everyone is the same so that you can teach in one standardized way, move quickly. And if you have, your child has a significant need or something about their personality that you really wish, wish the teachers understood better then open up that conversation. I think understanding each other better is at the core of really great education. So that's one piece. And uh, the second piece is to not be afraid to ask questions. Um, These are things that we're talking about in the educational field. So if you're seeing your kid come home every day crying and stressed and anxious and I hate school, don't be afraid to open up a conversation with the principal, the teachers, not in a way that's combative, but just trying to understand their pedagogical practice. Like, why why are we uh, doing things this way? Or, Or how, is there any other ways that you've heard of that we can find evidence of my child's learning or is there any other strategies that you've heard of that might be used to achieve X, Y, or Z? Um, Because this is a conversation that we're engaging in. And sometimes actually the biggest barrier that I find in my space to achieving change is people say, well, parents don't want it. They want things to be the way they were. But I think there is more and more kids that are becoming disillusioned with school. We're seeing evidence of it in all kinds of places. So if your kid is having a really awful experience with school, speak up. Because I think we need to get together as parents and educators and bring that whole village together to find a new experience that engages kids, builds their curiosity and wonder and makes them the creative, innovative, wonderful little people that they naturally are. Um, So we should all be fighting for that together. This episode of Cross Pollination is brought to you by the Calgary Foundation. Whether it's funding anti-racism programs, addiction recovery, or food hampers for the hungry, for 65 years, the Calgary Foundation has proudly supported the charitable community to address some of Calgary's biggest challenges. Now, during this period of unprecedented urgent needs, Calgary Foundation renewed its commitment to building a healthy, vibrant, giving, caring, and resilient community. If you're a registered charity looking for a grant, a professional advisor creating a giving plan for your client, or a donor wanting to give back to community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org and learn more about their work through Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's it for this week's episode. If you'd like to know more about Natalie's work or about her podcast, EduCrush, you can reach her at... EduCrushPod on Twitter or on the website at www.educrushpod.com. And you can find the podcast itself on Podcatchers Everywhere. If you'd like to comment on this episode or this show, you can reach Cross Pollination at Paulinata1 on Twitter or at www.crosspollination.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next month with more cross pollinating episodes on creativity, innovation, and doing things differently. Thanks to zapsplot.com for music. Thank you.